All right. Um, I am going to, I guess, tweet this out, uh, but then we can get started. All right, I am going to be talking today about an article I wrote for The Nation, which uh, just came out this morning. Uh, so if you head over uh, there, thenation.com, uh, you should see it. It's called One and a Half Cheers for Comrade Josh Howley. And uh, the editor I was working with initially suggested two cheers as a title. I said, look, this is Josh Howley we're talking about. The maximum uh, number of cheers I'm willing to assign him is uh, is one and a half. But uh, in any case, it is a response to something that Senator Josh Howley uh, wrote uh, for Compact Magazine about the near-miss rail strike and what he correctly describes as Democrats' betrayal of that uh, near-miss strike. And... Um, and it's about what I see as the large contradictions involved in Josh Howley sort of trying to score populist points by staking out this pro-labor stand in the rail strike and how I don't think that really fits with his overall political posture, uh, whatever's on your mind. Uh, so I'm going to start out maybe just reading the first few paragraphs of the article. So I start out by saying, Josh Howley is right. That's not a sentence I type very often. Senator Howley, Republican Missouri, has views on most subjects ranging from right-wing to extreme right-wing. When he was Missouri's attorney general, he joined a lawsuit aimed at overturning the Affordable Care Act. When he first ran for the Senate, he opposed a modest initiative to raise the state's poverty level minimum wage. On foreign policy, he's a frothed at the mouth anti-China hawk. On social policy, he boldly stated earlier this year that the Obergefell decision extending marriage equality to gay couples was, quote, wrongly decided, unquote. And he was a big proponent of overturning the will of the voters in the 2020 presidential election. But in, a, in an op-ed for Compact Magazine, Howley gets something important right. He assails Biden and the Democratic Party for selling out rail workers by using the hideously anti-union Railway Labor Act to stop a strike. And hey, when he's right, he's right. Democrats have made a mockery of their pro-labor rhetoric by robbing the rail workers of their right to strike. And in his compact piece, Howley responds to that betrayal with an entirely justified level of indignation and contempt. Howley is notorious for raising a clenched fist of solidarity with the anti-democracy rioters at the Capitol on January 6, 2021, but it's nice to see him raise one in solidarity with workers fighting for paid sick days. I am a little confused, though, about why I don't see Comrade Howley's name on the list of Senate co-sponsors for the PRO Act, which would make it far easier for workers to organize unions, perhaps it's an oversight. All right. Uh, so this is the sort of larger point, you know, being, uh, being made in the article that 
that this seems like a huge tension to me here, right? I, I want to acknowledge that, you know, even if he's saying it for his own reasons, Howley is right in what he says in the compact piece. I actually think people should go read that. It's a it's a really interesting document, and it's um, and you know it's a real indictment of the Democrats that they they actually um, cast votes that were so bad that they let uh, Josh Howley uh, outflank them from the left. That's 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 really atrocious. But it is a little much coming from somebody like Howley, who has I think something like an eleven percent overall voting record as uh, rated by the AFL-CIO. Okay, so I'm going to read a little bit more from the article. Um, so first section is entitled, What Howley Gets Right. The Railway Labor Act is a pre-New Deal law designed to crush labor militancy. The original justification, the one used this time around by Amtrak Joe Biden, is that rail strikes can cause what politicians consider to be unacceptable levels of economic disruption. Of course, the power of an organized working class lies precisely in the fact that workers can cause such disruption. As the lyrics of the labor anthem Solidarity Forever put it, without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. Without, in other words, workers being able to exercise that power to stop the wheels of the economic machine from turning, there's no particular reason for the capitalist class to grant them any concessions whatsoever. It's not a coincidence that even after the uptick in recent years, strike activity is down dramatically from the level that was routine in the recent past, uh, sorry, routine in decades past, you know, what was routine in like the seventies, for example, and that we live in a hellscape of stagnant wages and extreme economic precarity. A successful rail strike would be a dramatic demonstration of worker power. Who knows what that would have led to if Congress hadn't put a stop to it. The vote to invoke the act flew through the House and Senate over the course of two days. A minor miracle, given how long Congress usually spends before deciding to do anything. Most journalists described what happens as Congress acting to avert a rail strike, but this is importantly misleading. The easiest way to avert a strike would be for rail companies to offer workers a contract they found acceptable. Instead, Joe Biden brokered a tentative deal that was voted down by the rank and file of the unions representing the bulk of the workforce, and then he successfully urged Congress to use the Railway Labor Act to take away the workers' option to go on strike to see if they could get a better deal. A major sticking point was that the tentative deal didn't grant workers their modest demand for a handful of paid sick days. As things stand now at rail companies like the Warren Buffett-owned BNSF, workers could be penalized for taking even unpaid sick days. Miss a single day of work for any reason, even if you're coughing up blood and your dock points in BNSF system. If your point balance goes all the way down to zero, you're suspended. If it happens again, you're fired. As Howley points out, politicians take their own right to stay home when they're sick with no financial penalty as something like a divine right. No one would dream of telling a representative or senator worried about catching COVID, for example, that their income would be docked by so much as a dollar for failing to show up to an in-person vote. Howley connects this with cultural contempt felt by what he calls the professional managerial types, 
dominating uh, the Democratic Party for those who do blue collar work. And at this point, I'll maybe just parenthetically say uh, it, it is really jarring uh, to see Josh Howley use that phrase. So the phrase, the professional managerial class, was originally, um, I do not remember the name of her co-author off the top of my head, but it was originally the late Barbara Ehrenreich uh, who coined that phrase, you know, PMC, professional managerial class, uh, in the context of basically the sort of late new left and thinking about the disconnect between um, sort of more traditionally working class people and um, and uh, middle class um, and uh, you know and, and like middle class people university professors for example who would go to leftist meetings and she was trying to think all that through and she came up with this phrase you know which some you know it's obviously used later by people like Adolf Reed and so on uh, so it, it's really strange to see this extreme right-wing uh, Republican senator using this phrase professional managerial types, which I think definitely is the uh, sort of downstream from that original leftist usage of this phrase, uh, professional managerial class. Uh, but again, we haven't gotten to the end of the stuff that he's right about. So let's talk about that. So I said, how we connect this with the cultural contempt felt by the professional managerial types dominated the Democratic Party for those who do blue collar work. Quote, more and more of our leaders, he says, embrace the idea that blue collar work is low status, even embarrassing. There too, he has a point. In Thomas Frank's book, really excellent, indispensable book, Listen Liberal or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People, Frank makes a compelling case that the version of liberalism that's dominated Democratic Party politics for the past several decades flows from the meritocratic worldview of well-educated professionals. Instead of defining social justice in terms of the conditions of the working class majority of society, contemporary liberals define it as the removal of racist, sexist, or otherwise arbitrary barriers preventing the best and the brightest of each demographic group from rising to the top. Halley says that uh, the, quote, professional and political class, unquote, wants everyone in the country to be like them, that everyone should, quote, go to an expensive college, unquote, and get an office job, for example. He rejects this as elitist. A deeper objection he doesn't make is that it's structurally impossible for everyone to trade educational credentials for a ticket into the professional managerial class for the obvious reason that there are only so many slots to go around. Um, President Obama once said that the best anti-poverty program ever devised is world-class education. I'll just parenthetically say that this, this idea that education solves poverty is a common thread that connects uh, everybody from President Obama, for example, to like your right-wing uncle who says that fast food workers protesting for um, $15 an hour should just go back to college if they want to get better paid jobs. Because after all, these fast food jobs were never meant, you know, for adults, you know, supporting children and families. Um, that, you know, there are left and right versions of it, but the, the sort of common thought that, you know, that, that education is the solution to poverty or poverty wages or whatever, is something that is a real animated drive in both 
a lot of right-wing anti-labor stuff and also in, in the sort of centrist uh, Democratic Party politics and the way and, and the way that education is emphasized there. But it makes no sense. So I go on to say, um, but education can't play that role for the majority of the population for depressingly obvious mathematical reasons. If everyone went to college, going to college wouldn't give anyone a comparative advantage in the labor market. If everyone learned to code, the skill couldn't be parlayed into higher wages. Um, education and professional advancement could be a way out of poverty for the lucky few, but for everyone else, the way to get a bigger slice of the pie is to band together and exercise their collective power to stop the economic wheels from turning until their demands are met. In other words, um, you know, everybody learns to code. Knowing how to code uh, doesn't give you any labor market advantage over, you know, knowing how to flip a burger. It just means that uh, people who know how to code can be paid burger flipping wages. Uh, this is not some sort of strange radical Marxist point that I'm making. This is the, you know, this is just the basic stuff on supply and demand in the uh, first chapter of your wildly pro-capitalist Econ 101 textbook. Same idea. Um, okay, so going back to the article, uh, the uh, the last section is called uh, "Which Side Is Howley On?" Uh, starts like this. Howley rightly pours contempt on various powerful people who join forces to stop rail workers from exercising that power. Quoting Howley's article now, management, the White House, Nancy Pelosi and her cadre of House Democrats, I love that, her cadre of House Democrats, and of course the Senate with the help of too many Republicans, unquote. Now, that phrase, too many Republicans, is more than a little misleading. The plain fact is that even the most allegedly populist Republicans are well to the right of even the corporate centrist leadership of the Democratic Party on economic issues, and that fact made itself apparent during the set of votes. After the Democratic majority of the House voted to rob the rail workers of their right to strike, they tried to soften the blow by adding an amendment to toss the workers a few sick days, and nearly every Republican in the House voted nay on that amendment. Um, literally, I mean, the House is like 50-50, almost, Demo you know, Democrat-Republican, and literally only three Republicans voted for it. Every Democrat did, and, you know, almost 200 Republicans voted against, you know, voted against it, three voted for it. So talking about what the Democrats and, quote, too many Republicans, unquote, did, paints a misleading picture. But, this is a relatively minor objection. Let's put it aside. We'll put aside, too, the various ways in which Howley can't restrain himself from pausing in the middle of his indictment of the vote to suppress the labor strike, to score uh, unrelated cultural war points on subjects like student loan debt and cosmopolitan liberals deferring child rearing until later in life. He says things like, you know, during that, they want everybody to be like them. Go to an expensive college, defer having children to later in life, you know, take out lots of student loan debt. Uh, those are just him taking pot shots at, you know, cosmopolitan latte drinkers or whatever has absolutely nothing to do with the point about labor. In fact, you know, look, plenty of working class people have student loan debt. Um, 
plenty of working class people wait to have kids uh, until later in life, although there is an economic gap in that. Uh, so again, that's how we being a culture warrior has nothing to do with the point about labor, but I go on to say, these are flies in the ointment, but the overall thrust of the article is spot on. If he keeps this up, perhaps someday he might write for the nation. Uh, given his newfound zeal for the cause of organized labor, though, I expect Halley to start doing things a little bit differently in the future. Donald Trump's appointees to the National Labor Relations Board relentlessly sided with management and its workers, often overturning labor-friendly precedents from Obama's NLRB. Um, again, parenthetically, I'll say it's not that I think Obama was somehow pro-labor. You know, he's certainly the, um, you know, Democrats are a ruling class party. And, you know, there's a, there are social democratic insurgents within it, you know, who are pro-labor, but you know, Obama's obviously, to put it very mildly, not one of them. Uh, it's just that, you know, you could have two ruling class parties that are pursuing different strategies. And, you know, the Obama and Biden strategies aren't about crushing labor in quite the same way. Uh, that the Republican ones are, even though they're willing to do it in cases like averting a rail strike, that uh, you know that they're worried would cause all this economic disruption. But on a day-to-day level, they're not trying to immediately crush unions in this quite the same way. Okay, so I make this point about Donald Trump's appointees to the NLRB, you know, being way, way, way worse than Obama's had been, or than Biden's are now, and I uh, say, not only presumably. Howley didn't know this uh, when he not only supported Trump in the 2020 election, but also supported efforts to overturn the results. I expect he'll campaign against the Donald this time around. And he'll certainly lend his uh, support to the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, right, better known by the acronym, the PRO Act, a piece of legislation that would un- finally undo some of the most outrageous ways that American labor law is stacked against unions. For example, by banning the practice of captive audience meetings where workers are forced to sit through anti-union propaganda during organizing drives. Uh, obviously, they don't have to go to pro-union meetings, but you know their employer can't force them to go to anti-union meetings or work hours. Uh, PRO Act also makes it harder for employers to fire workers, try to organize, et cetera, et cetera. If Howley were minimally serious about his pro-labor rhetoric, he would obviously come around and support this piece of legislation, but not so much. Right now, there isn't a single Republican senator among the act's 46 co-sponsors. So I end the article by saying, I'm sure Josh Howley will be the first any day now. Okay, on that note, uh, if you want to uh, if you want to call in, questions, thoughts, uh, to call in, uh, do you want to plug just a few other things that I've had out recently or that are coming out in the near future? Uh, so one of them uh, is in, um, in Jacobin, the new print issue. Uh, it's available online if you're a subscriber. It is unfortunately paywall for now, which is a socialist critique of effective altruism. It's called Alt. Effective altruism is no substitute for a better society. Uh, I also have something that came out last week in Current Affairs uh, called The South Then and Now, uh, which is a review or essay taken as a starting point. Uh, Adolf Reed's wonderful book, The South, Jim Crow and Its Afterlives, which I would really strongly recommend. Tied ones. 
Uh, but in any case, I'd probably go do Collins about both of those in the near future. But meanwhile, uh, we do have a caller. So, Thomas, what is on your mind? Hey, Ben. Thanks for uh, taking the call. Sure. What's up? Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on um, the conservatism of today's unions, um, as opposed mm-hmm. to, of course, this is not the... Uh, the old AFL, uh, the unions of today are far from that. Mm-hmm. They are constituency groups of the Democratic Party for the most part, right? Beholden almost entirely to the Democrats with no aims of sort of representing the working class as a whole or achieving socialism in any sense, right? Um, well, yeah. parts of that I think are right. Yeah, I think, I think that the, uh, I, I think it's certainly true that uh, neither the leadership nor the membership of any major union um, has uh, is is made up of socialists, uh, and you know, in anything close to a majority. I mean, there are, um, you know, there are maybe you know a few exceptions to that, but uh, but but by and large, no. I mean, I think most uh, I think most trade unionists, uh, either on a rank and file level or or on a leadership level, are. You know, left liberals, uh, basically. Uh, I, I think that, you know, as far as like representing the working class, I think it depends a little bit on what you mean. If you mean like politically as a, uh, as like an independent uh, party uh, from, uh, from, you know, then, uh, then no, I think the idea, you know, most um, hardly any, you know, labor leaders, uh, you know, think, um, you know, think of, you know, like our, Sort of oriented towards the idea of a of a of like a separate labor party, and honestly, probably even fewer uh, rank and file workers are right now. Right, that they uh, uh, like you can uh, you know probably if uh, you know like I, I think the uh, I, I think if you polled you know you did members on that, probably the uh, the numbers would be within within the margin of error because most people sort of accept the you know America's quasi-official two-party system as a fact of life. Now, I think that the, I, I think that like just saying that means that unions are just appendages to the Democratic Party or things like that, I think is is overstating the case uh, considerably. I think that, uh, I think that um, you know, the, the primary purpose of, you know, most unions most of the time is in fact uh, to, you know, to organize for, you know, for, for better wages, better conditions, et cetera. But, uh, but as far as going beyond, you know, what Lenin called uh, trade union consciousness to the idea that, you know, the working class is an interest in getting rid of the system as a whole, um, that's certainly not where we're at. You know, I, I definitely agree with you about that. But, but, it, yeah. but, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm quite capturing like where you're going with the question yet. No, I, I think you, I think you kind of, got most of it um yeah i mean i think i think that there is because of the the current situation like i know a lot of people have rested like big hopes on for instance um whether you know the possibility of the rail workers strike or mm-hmm. i know there's various um like union actions going on at various universities right now like mm-hmm. i live in new york i know there's one at the new school um yeah, I think and that was just think, resolved, but yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and so I think uh, we sort of have to 
as socialists temper our expectations, you know, mm-hmm. that maybe the best, I mean, the best thing that can come out of it, and like, it's a good thing, is that people get, you know, raises, more benefits. That's great. But it's not necessarily like, oh, this is going to be a spark for socialism in some way. No, I, I think that an organized working class is a necessary condition for a successful um, socialist project, honestly, even a successful, pretty minimalistically social democratic project. Um, but it's certainly nothing like a, a sufficient one uh, that, you know, we're not going to have like, I, I think that you I think that like introducing some kind of level of working class organization on the shop floor, I think, I think does um, like, I think that this is something that can, uh, that can start to get people to think of themselves as, as, as part of a distinct group uh, from, you know, from, from capitalists or other social groups. I think that it's, you know, certainly, I think that you're not going to have any kind of successful left movement without it. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, just that there's a lot of union activity, or I mean, really, what we're talking about right now is a lot of union activity. If you grade on a curve of the last couple of decades, I mean, if you're not grading on that curve, if you are thinking about like the '70s or something, then actually, right now, there's still relatively little union activity, but there's certainly a big uptick compared to to what there was. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that it's, um, I, I think that it would be pretty like, you know, right now, uh, I, I guess, I, I, I guess I would just kind of maybe put it this way. think about it this way that like, you know, a lot of like, there's a big section of the American socialist left that in some way can, tr- you know, genealogically, trace back its origins to uh to the trotskyist movement to the uh uh you know the socialist workers party uh earlier in the 20th century um sometimes through weird convoluted ways uh like you know dsa being um you know being founded by you know michael harrington who was influenced by Mac Shackman, who was, you know, who used to be a Trotskyist and evolved in a sort of weird direction or whatever. But like, that's a very common sort of origin story for various kinds of American leftists, that they, you know, American socialists that come out of that movement. And and I think one of the, and I think there are, there are good things and bad things you can say about Trotskyism. Um, you know, I think that it got a lot of important questions right in the 20th century about Stalinism, and imperialism and other things like that. But uh, but I think one of the unfortunate legacies is the sort of tendency to sort of understand everything bad in terms of like sort of uh, betrayal or people not having the correct political line or misleadership. Uh, so Leon Trotsky wrote in a document in 1938 called the Transitional Program that the you know the, the crisis of capitalism today is ultimately a crisis of leadership. That might not be an exact quote, but it's very close to it if it's not, uh, which might or might not have been true in 1938. You know, but I think is I think is a really unfortunate sort of um, frame for people to put on everything that happens uh, since then, right? Since since in like you know take that kind of Labour Party question. You know the, the question about the Democrats who you're raising earlier, um, like 
if if magically every single union in uh, in the United States uh, decided to break away from the Democrats and, and support uh, and support a new political party. Uh, which, by the way, I mean, it's not like there's some sort of great pressure for that outcome from below. <laughs> it's just that you know, cur- you know, it's just that like, you know, sellout leaders don't want it or something. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, if anything, back in the '90s when people like Tony Mizaki were were promoted the idea of a labor party, I think they, I think they had to be very careful in what ways to to, to to pitch that that wouldn't be totally alienated to their members because it just sounded crazy. Um, but like, even if it did somehow magically happen tomorrow, I mean, well, well, that's every union in the United States, uh, represents less than 7% of America's private sector workforce. Um, so that, that, that wouldn't, you know, like that would be, um, you know, certainly a big third party by American standards, but, you know, probably not one that's winning a lot of, uh, a lot of national uh, national elections in the uh, in the short term, uh, all of which is is just to say. I mean, I, I guess I agree with the way you presented your point earlier that like about temporary experience, But I mean, I, I think it's just like sometimes you, you're just in really bad uh, material circumstance. You know, you're just in really bad political circumstances to begin with, and um, and it's 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 not. There's not really a sort of one neat trick for like, oh, if only everybody had this political line or if only everybody embraced this idea, then we would be, you know, well on our way to actually overcoming capitalism. I think that I think that we're just starting from a really dismal starting point and sort of even getting people to the point where they can kind of see like um, we should have um, some kind of organization so people can at least win some very limited gains, even if we're just talking about like wages and working conditions or, you know, the, um, or, you know, you should even, even within, you know, democratic primaries, you should support candidates who will, you know, who might be able to achieve things like, like universal healthcare. Like that's, that's sort of a very boring, uh, like, like, like those, those are kind of exact, exasperating baby steps. You know, I mean, if, if you're, already thinking about like, okay, so like, why aren't we having like a, a socialist revolution yet? But I think, I think maybe when you're starting, you know, when you're starting at such an awful starting point, you know, then, then that might, that might literally be what's, um, you know, what's possible. I mean, I always think, you know, I like the sort of cheesy metaphor I always like is if you've seen the uh, Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill movies in the, uh, the first one of those, um, Uma Thurman's character has just come out of a coma and later in the movie, she's going to be uh, on a, a rampage of killing, you know, killing all these gangsters in Tokyo at the end of the movie and and doing these, like, insane athletic things to sort of jump around, you know, gangsters. But at the beginning of the movie, she's just come out of the coma and she, she can't walk. And there's the scene where she's sort of staring at her, um, her feet. Um, you know, that's... Tarantino probably has a foot obsession, but uh, she stared at her feet thinking, you know, move your, move your big toe, move your, you know, wiggle your big toe, wiggle your big toe. And eventually, um, and so like the, the point of the scene is just her getting like starting to like get some motion in her, in her big toe. Uh, and that's as like a very small step in the direction of like being able to walk, much less being able to, 
do these like crazy feats of martial arts, uh, you know, later in the movie. So it's, it, it's, you know, I, I think, I mean, none of this is to say, don't get mad at, people. <laughs> you know, don't get mad at, uh, at genuine misleadership. Like if, if you have, uh, you know, union leaders or, or, you know, elected socialists who, uh, who, who support, um, you know, who support things that really are portrayals of the working class, which I, I would argue that this is actually an example of that, that, yeah, get mad at that, you know, but I mean, in terms of thinking about like socialism, uh, overall social strategy, etc., you know, I would, uh, I would argue that, that we are at the, uh, I mean, look, if, if anybody's got, if anybody's got the sort of strategy figured out for like, okay, this is the thing that we can do. So, uh, so, so that we can have, uh, you know, so that we'll actually achieve, you know, socialism in 10 years or something. I am all ears about that, but, but my inclination is to think that we're the, we're the, uh, wiggle your big toe phase. Uh, well, thanks, Ben. I, I gotta go, but thank you for answering the question and, uh, the questions. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good night. Thanks. Um, I also wrote something for the Daily Beast that came out a couple of days ago called uh, the Twitter Files for to Elon Musk's Pals, uh, which is uh, which is exactly what it sounds like. I want to both push back against people who want to minimize the sort of importance of the revelations about corporate censorships, and which I actually do think are are significant and worth taking seriously. But at the same time, I think that it's really bad. That um, you know, Elon Musk, who of course, I mean, you wouldn't expect anything better from him. Maybe some level union busted billionaire, but that he has only released this information to these three people: um, Barry Weiss, Matt Taibbi, and Michael Schellenberger. I think is the name of the third person, who all have you know, Taibbi is the one who has the most sort of leftish views in the past he might still i don't want to i don't want to characterize his views but certainly the last couple of years he's been very uh, increasingly fixated on certain kinds of anti-woke preoccupations and and weiss has you know, never been anything that you'd mistake for left wing uh, michael schellenberger actually wrote a book called uh, san francisco sorry i said san francisco uh, the book is called san francisco uh san francisco uh, which I think tells you everything you need to know about him. Um, and so it's not surprising with that crew that they're focusing on the revelations about conservatives getting censored. Um, and, you know, they don't really, you know, they don't really delve into uh, other, you know, what, you know, like, I want to know what else is in there. I want to know, you know, if Democrats and Republicans have both requested censorship from Twitter for partisan reasons, which Taibbi's initial uh, tweets confirmed, um, although he doesn't give any examples of the Republican requests. Uh, what other corporate and governmental actors have requested censorship? What about censorship of pro-Palestinian accounts, et cetera? So ultimately, I think if Musk was serious about transparency, what he'd do is just a big WikiLeaks-style Wikileaks data dump so journalists across the political spectrum could look into, um, could look into this and, and access and analyze the data on their own, or at the very least find a real spectrum of journalists uh, who are who are granted access to it, so that's the point of that article. Um, got a couple of other things coming up. I could mention, but instead, I'm just going to skip to talking about 
uh, the New York City live show. So on January 22nd uh, at the Cutting Room in New York, so that's like half a mile from Penn Station, very centrally located. Uh, I am going to be part of the second joint Give Them an Argument, Left Reckoning, This is Revolution live show. First one was in Los Angeles um, last, you know, late October, uh, which was fantastic. Uh, was went really, really well. Uh, this one, I think, is going to be even better. We've got Bhaskar Sankar from Jacobin. We've got Emma Vingland and Sam Cedar from Majority Report. Um, unlike the last one where the sort of GTA crew uh, couldn't really make it, here you're going to get... Uh, uh, you know, J. Andrew World, our graphic designer, will be around. All of our producers, past and present, uh, Jay Caput, uh, present, Kale uh, Brooks, past, uh, Forrest Miller, way past, but probably Forrest will be there too. Definitely the other two. Um, should be a lot of fun. Really looking forward to it. Really had a blast at the first one. So uh, that's January 22nd. Um, I've got, if you go over by Twitter, the, the pinned tweet uh, has the Ticketmaster link. Um, so doors, uh, well, VIP meeting grade is at five. Doors open for everybody else at six. Uh, show itself starts at seven. Uh, probably a couple of us will be elsewhere in a location we will uh, announce after uh, getting some drinks and, and probably there'll be a DJ there uh, for a little after party. So uh, should be... Uh, should be a lot of fun. Really looking forward to that. So uh, please do come check that out. I will see, I hope, a bunch of you in person there. And with that, I am going to uh, stop for today. Later.